Amen. I'm going to head and dismiss the children's to children's church, uh, and I'm glad I remember that because I have a sticky note to remember that because I usually forget it. Uh, if you're wondering who uh, I am, because uh, I'm usually not up here most of the time, I'm probably up here maybe uh, every three or four months uh, preaching, uh, but it is a joy and a, and a privilege to be up here with you as our senior pastor, Pastor Mike, is away uh, with his daughter visiting colleges, and Pastor Lee our youth pastor preached last week. I am filling in this week. Uh, I am the outreach and recovery pastor. Uh, and really what that means is uh, I am everywhere all at once. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, it seems like that, though. Uh, but that's who I am. And um, uh, I'm the newest on staff here. Uh, and I've been here for about uh, two or on staff for about two years now. Uh, and I have loved uh, every minute of it. But it's a joy to have you if you're new uh, there's a guest uh, visitor form in your bulletin that you can fill out uh, and uh, receive a free gift for that. But we also, uh, more so than that, want to follow up with you and help you get plugged in into the community if you're new or into our church if you're new as well. Uh, before I jump into the sermon, uh, something's a little bit different this time. And um, it is uh, because I am now a dad as of two weeks ago. Uh, I might have a picture, I think, uh, of the kid. Yeah, uh, I caught that one. Uh, I should be a photographer, actually. Uh, so uh, his name's Ezra, Ezra Blake Calloway. Uh, and you will get uh, the Blake part later of where that comes from later in the sermon. Uh, but he is going on three weeks uh, tomorrow. Uh, so he is fresh, but let me tell you, he's perfect in every way. He's healthy baby. He was born 6 pounds, 11 ounces, and now he is 7 pounds, 5 ounces, and so he was growing, uh, and praise the Lord for that. He is such a gift uh, to uh, my family and also to this church as well. Uh, so church, we have another one. Man, we've had a busy year with babies, and let me tell you, the Lord is doing something here in this church, uh, in this community with all the babies that are happening and, and uh, being popped out, and uh, he is raising up a generation for such a time as this. I believe so, uh, and I have faith in so. Well, this morning we can find ourselves in uh, Mark chapter 4. Uh, if you want to go ahead and be turning there, or if you have your Bibles, if you have your, uh, your phone Bibles with you, turn there as well. Uh, I think it'll be on the screen as well. But if your life hasn't fallen apart at least once just yet, uh, well, just wait. Okay, just wait. Because it will. Every one of us faces trials and troubles when we sail into a storm. It may be a cancer diagnosis. Yeah, we're jumping in deep this morning. It may be a sudden and unexpected job loss where you struggle to provide for your family. You may even face the horror of the death of a child, maybe even the death of a spouse. I don't know what trials you have faced or what trials you will face in our short time here on the side of heaven. What I do know for certain is that all of us will face them in some shape, way, form, or another. Whether it's a physical storm, a thunderstorm, a hurricane, flood, tornado, you name it. Maybe many of you have been in such a storm. Some of us have storms of life, though, as I just mentioned. Some of us have trials of many kinds. Some of us, we experience just a couple. Some of, it, some of us, it seems like we're always in a storm. Nevertheless, all of us will find ourselves in a storm in some way or another. 
it is just a matter of time. However, as Christians, those, who, uh, those of us who profess Jesus and claim to have a relationship with him, how does knowing and having such a relationship with Jesus change the way we handle trials? When life is out of control, when that storm does come, how does it change the game for us? Is the question that we should be asking ourselves this morning. This morning we'll find part of the answer in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Probably for many of you in this service at least, a very familiar passage. One that you probably read over and over and have come, maybe become a little insensitive to it. You just know it by heart. So, as you're turning there this morning in your Bibles, I want, to, I want you to know two important truths these verses teach us, okay? The first is this. Mark returns to one of the big themes in his letter, which is the authority and identity of Jesus Christ. Earlier in his gospel, you can read all about Jesus having authority over disease and demons. This morning, though, we will see Jesus also having authority over the created world. Second, this passage teaches us how to face life's storms with Jesus in our lives. These are the two big main points that this passage teaches. I've heard time and time again, I've only been a Christian for a very short while here, but I've heard multiple, multiple sermons on this passage, and majority of the time they're all about Jesus calming the storm, and so he can calm the storm in your life, and that's it. Now, that is a very important truth. Believe me, I'm not denying that, but I think if we just look at this passage and see just that, then we might be missing some things as well. And so my job this morning as one of your pastors and shepherds is to look a little beyond that, but also to talk about that specific point as well, okay? So let's read it together. It says, and I'm an ESV type of guy, so maybe your translation is different, and it might say a couple of different words. That's okay. Don't freak out. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Mark chapter four begins by telling us the setting where the storm happened, if we look later back in the very beginning here. After that, it talks about three great things, okay? And uh, your bulletin notes will not match up with my headings on the screen. Part of the reason is because I changed my sermon a little bit at the last minute, and that's just how I do things. Uh, but still, uh, the bulletin notes will serve as a, as a guide for you and as great points for you during the sermon. But there are three great things. They are the great fear in the storm, the great calm after the storm, and the great fear of Jesus by the disciples. And we will divide our time this morning by those great 
are three great things. But before we jump into those three great things, we need to, to kind of get a setting, a, a little bit of background uh, information on what's happening here, okay? The storm took place on the Sea of Galilee. Maybe you have been there. Maybe you have visited um, this place. Uh, Jesus made his headquarters at Capernaum on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. In the previous chapters of the book of Mark, we see that Jesus travels to other villages around Capernaum to teach the good news of God's kingdom. Capernaum was his home base. It was kind of his, his headquarters, so to say. Peter's house was in Capernaum as well, and this is where he stayed while in the city, okay? When the crowds grew too big, which they often did, and they overwhelmed Peter's home, Jesus often moved outside of the city and taught on the, uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus often taught on the beach, on the beach side there. So earlier in this chapter, we can read, if you look back just a few uh, passages down, and learn that Jesus taught a handful of other parables right beforehand while on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We also learn that at this time, a very large crowd came to hear him teach. The Greek language used here to describe the size of this crowd could be translated as the largest crowd yet. Crowds of 10,000 or more were not uncommon for Jesus. People in these crowds came from as far as 150 miles away. Could you imagine walking to church this morning 150 miles? People in these crowds didn't just want to hear him teach, though. That's the thing. As good as that was, they wanted to touch Jesus because many who touched him were instantly healed. It was a nonstop kind of mob scene with people constantly pressing into Jesus to touch him. Or maybe your version might say, or translation might say, crushing in on him. Earlier, Mark said Jesus was in constant danger of being crushed by these crowds. So to keep a safe distance from, uh, between himself and these large crowds, Jesus occasionally talked from a small boat that he would put out into the water to, cre- to keep the crowds at bay. Today, we pick up the story after Jesus spent a long day teaching to thousands of people from a boat all throughout the day. You can imagine how exhausting it would be to speak loudly enough for all these people to hear, to project enough for your voice to be heard by thousands upon the shoreline. We have just two services here, and by the second service, after Sunday school, I am wiped out. And I don't have to project that much. I really don't even need a microphone because I speak pretty much, I speak very loudly even without a mic. But let me tell you, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to spend your day out teaching in the hot sun on the shoreline to thousands of people. Imagine how tired Jesus was at the end of this day here, of speaking for hours at the top of his lungs, plus sitting on the boat in the sun fending off the crowds that were crushing in on him because they wanted to touch him. And yes, some wanted to hear him as well, absolutely. But humanly speaking, Jesus was exhausted. And having that important background, our story begins in verses 35 to 36. It says, on that day when evening had come. When it says on that day, 
That day means this is the evening uh, hours of the same day that we read in the beginning of the book of Mark chapter 4, okay? The same day Jesus was teaching this large crowd outside of the city of Capernaum. It was a long day. Jesus was exhausted. It is now evening. The sun is setting, okay? He said to them, let us go across to the other side. Jesus took the initiative and suggested that they travel to the other side of the lake where the garrisons were, right? Maybe this was Jesus' plan to, to break free from the crowds. If he went ashore, people would, again, crowd around him. But if he headed to the other side of the lake with his disciples, it would at least take a while for the crowd to, to catch up and follow him. Jesus, Jesus and his disciples could rest for a little while, sailing across the lake until the crowd arrived again. While on the human, uh, while on the human level, this trip looks like a simple chance for some needed rest, and we see that. But this trip was also part of God's plan to teach his disciples more about his love for them and the incredible authority he possesses over the created world. Jesus was about to reveal to them a level of power and authority that they did not fully comprehend and know he possessed at this time. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, it says. So who owned the boat? Well, we don't know exactly, okay? Maybe it was Peter, James, or John. Seven of the 12 apostles were fishermen that we know, seasoned fishermen, okay? And so when Jesus called them, they left their boats. They didn't sell their boats. When it says they left the crowd and, and took Jesus in the boat just as he was, that tells us Jesus never went back to shore before this trip across the lake. They didn't, uh, they didn't give the crowds a chance to crush in on him again. No bathroom break, no snack break. Scripture tells us they just got in the boat and started sailing across the Sea of Galilee. If you were like me, you were wondering what kind of boat was it that they used then on this lake, and what kind of boat did it look like? The Greek word for the boat is non-descriptive about this type of boat. We know it was a relatively small boat because it was used for fishing on this lake here, but we don't know really much more than that. I do have a picture for you. Maybe you can see it. Uh, this was found here uh, in 1986. They discovered a fishing boat stuck in the mud at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. Like many of our lakes around here might have a drought where the water sinks down, right, and you can see uh, the bottom of the lake. Well, such a thing as this. It's called the Sea of Galilee, but really... It's a freshwater lake. It's not a sea. And they found this in 1986. And they dated it as best they could and believed that it was a fishing boat from the time of Jesus back in the first century. And I just thought that it was really amazing that they even found this. And just the, uh, even though it looks to us like, what is that? Like, that's not a boat. That's not my pontoon that I have at the back of my house. I, I get that, all right? But it is amazing. The boat gives us a good picture of what fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee uh, kind of looked like during this time. Archaeologists have, named, have nicknamed this boat the Jesus Boat. There's not much left of it because, uh, besides uh, the ribs and some of the outer board. But combining that with what we already know about fishing boats during this time on the Sea of Galilee, we can get a good picture of what this boat kind of looked like. It was 27 feet long and just short of 8 feet wide. All 12 of the apostles could fit in it. 
Fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee typically had a place for two rowers per side, okay? And traditionally, it would, have, it was almost, it would also have a mast for sailing. So they would row when the wind uh, wasn't blowing to get them to sail them across, but they also had a, a, a mast uh, for sailing when the wind was blowing for them to sail. So Jesus was probably in a boat similar to this, if you can kind of imagine it being put together. Um, they were making a short trip across the lake, leaving the crowd behind. When Luke wrote about the storm in his gospel, if you look in the gospel of Luke, he told us that they sailed to the other side of the lake. They were not rowing. They were sailing. That is a, that is a different Greek word here. They were taking advantage of the, the, gentle, the gentle evening breeze in a calm lake to sail to the other side. The sail was completely open probably. It was calm and peaceful evening. Luke said as they sailed, it was so peaceful that Jesus fell asleep. Jesus fell asleep. Any of you have a, like a, a sound machine? Nobody, nobody has a sound machine in here? You can raise your hand. It's okay. I was about to say. You look, those of us babies have sound machines. Like, come on. Uh, I have a sound machine, and I love it. Absolutely the best thing in my life. We probably have like three of them through the house. We play all of them at night. Yeah. Uh, part of it is for the dogs. We got dogs with anxiety, so that's just, you know, crazy. Uh, but... And I, th- I thought of this, and uh, thinking about Jesus sleeping on the boat. A lot of times I set my sound machine on the wave setting, okay, where it sounds of the ocean and the waves crashing in onto the shoreline. Well, I think of Jesus here, and his sound machine is set on waves, okay? Maybe they don't make sense to you. But Mark told us Jesus fell asleep on the cushion. In the Greek, it is literally called the head of the pillow. So he fell asleep on a pillow. Jesus was exhausted. He is taking a well-deserved nap. All of us can picture the peace and tranquility of this scene. Jesus sleeping, casually sailing across the Sea of Galilee. This is the only time in the Gospels that we can explicitly read of where Jesus sleeps. Of course, he slept like everyone else at night, but Mark wanted us to know Jesus was asleep, pointing to his humanity here. We read that Jesus cries. We read that Jesus even dies a death on the cross. Time and time again, the Gospels and the Gospel writers point to Jesus' humanity, that he is like us in every way except for our sinful nature. Jesus knew no sin. He was perfect and sinless. But yet, we can, he can sympathize and empathize with us in every way because he was also fully human. We read that uh, a great windstorm arose, and this is the great storm here that we are talking about of the next section here. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, and the stern is the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So when it says a great windstorm, or your translation might say uh, a furious squall, the Greek term used to describe this, this type of storm here, again, it's not just a regular storm. This is a storm like no other. A great windstorm, a, a hurricane, or, or, or a cyclone type of storm. We're talking 70 mile per hour plus type of winds on this, on this lake here. You might be thinking, well, how is that? This is just a lake. Well, if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, if you've ever looked at 
the, the landscape around this lake here is surrounded by a, a mountain range or, or a hillside almost, but also was surrounded by and close by the desert as well. So when you have the cool air coming over the, the, the mountain or the hillside and the, the warm air coming from the desert, and it mixes right here in this, in this basin, because again, the Sea of Galilee, well, not again, but the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. 700 feet below sea level. So here's this basin here where the air mixes. And you know a hot and cold mixes, it creates storms here. So Luke, when he recalled this incident in his gospel, said that the windstorm descended upon the lake. You can picture the wind racing down the slopes and, and dropping on Jesus and his disciples unexpectedly with their sails up, fully open, just casually sailing. The wind kicked up, waves so large that they were breaking into the boat. And we see the boat was already filling. The Greek here could be translated as the boat was currently full. That means the waves were so big, they broke into the boat and flooded it. And flooded it. At this point, with the wind and the waves, bailing water here for the disciples with a bucket was not an option. They realized that death might be around the corner. We see complete panic set in for the disciples here. Remember, most of the disciples also were experienced fishermen. They were seasoned fishermen who spent their lives on this lake fishing. They've probably been through many storms. But yet, this one seemed like this, this was one like no other. They were convinced that they were going to drown. Your scripture might say that. Do you not care if we drown? Do you not care if we die, if we perish? In Matthew's account of this storm here, he described the waves of the storm as mega seismos. Seismos in the Greek word is where we get our English word for seismic. Seismic activity, as you know, is earth-shaking activity, earthquakes. These waves are so large that they were earth-shaking in nature. Again, I'm just trying to get you to picture this here to see how great the storm was. And even you can see storms today. You can see storms um, today if you just look them up on YouTube of storms on the Sea of Galilee. To make matters worse, we know they began to sail in the evening hours. Well, what does that mean? Well, it was either completely dark or it was close to it. So imagine hurricane-type storm you're in on this lake. It's completely dark or close to it dark, there's no seatbelts on this boat. Okay, this is not your pontoon. And they were being tossed to and fro. The boat's sinking. And they're in a panic. I tried to imagine what it might have felt like. I haven't been on many boats, and I haven't been on a cruise ever. Uh, and I haven't been out on a boat in a storm, so I, ha- I lack experience here. The closest I could imagine was riding a large roller coaster at an amusement park. And it's completely black, though. Like you, like you can't see anything, but you're on this roller coaster. You're diving straight down one moment and then straight up the next. Next is a sharp right turn and a, and a loop-de-loop and then a left. And all this was taking place with no seat belts and a good-sized body of water. Can you imagine the panic? Does it seem real to you? And yet, where was Jesus here in this storm? Well, his sound machine got a little uh, intense, and it turned into a storm. 
He was asleep on the cushion still, though. Jesus was in the back of the boat, asleep during all this, and he stayed asleep, as Scripture says. It looked like Jesus didn't care, or maybe he was just so exhausted. Everybody, everybody been so exhausted, like you just slept through everything, it seems like. I mean, just everything. That's probably going to be me to, today. I didn't sleep very much last night. It wasn't because of the baby. The baby slept just fine, but I was up all night. Yet, Jesus is sleeping. They were about to die. They were in danger. Jesus wouldn't even open his eyes to see what was happening. But yet, finally, the disciples summoned him. They woke him up. There was nothing wrong with disciples waking Jesus. But notice the words they used here. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Matthew, I think, says master. Luke says Lord. And all those titles are... in honor of respect of who Jesus was, but yet can you hear the tone? Even in their respect, teacher, master, Lord, and probably some other words maybe that they, uh, titles that they called him as well, other disciples. Can you hear the accusatory tone? Jesus, we are about to die, and you don't even care what's about to happen to us. They thought Jesus loved them. They thought that Jesus called them out. He chose them, right? Jesus was pouring his life and ministry into them, so he must have cared for them, right? Then when they needed him most, it looked like Jesus didn't care about them. He was sound asleep, which brings us to the great calm that we see happen. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. When Mark said that he rebuked the wind and told the waves to be at peace and be, at, and be still, that's exactly what happened, just like that. The tense of the verb here tells us that creation, this storm, responded instantly to the commands of Jesus, its master. The winds instantly, more than 70 miles per hour, raging across the lake, turned into a complete calm at the snap of your fingers. The foaming water and the crashing waves, eight, seven feet high, went flat. The lake, smooth as glass now. Another way to translate this is it went dead calm. <coughs> there was no waiting for the waves to die down. The water instantly went smooth as glass. Can you imagine the disciples in this moment? Can you imagine the shock of their minds after what they had just been through in this great storm? Then, then this storm just all of a sudden goes calm in an instant. The apostles, as Jews, who knew their Old Testament very well, would have found their minds instantly rummaging through the Old Testament, the Bible that they knew for passages of Scripture that would help them understand what just happened here. Who is this man? There is no other conclusion other than God himself is the only one who can do what just happened. Again, they've been learning about Jesus here. He's a great teacher, and he can do miracles, heal people, cure diseases. But man, he also is master over creation over the created world, over inanimate objects that we see. It says in Psalm 89, verse 9, you rule the raging of the sea when its, ra when its uh, waves rise. 
you steal them. In Psalm 65, verses 6 and seven, uh, through 7, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who steals the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves of the peoples. Then one of my favorites, Psalm 107, verses 28 through 30. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought to them their desired haven. <coughs> in this gospel, each small story about Jesus gave the apostles and us today a constantly expanding realization of the authority and identity of who Jesus actually is. Again, I could just preach a sermon and say, hey, Jesus calms a storm, and he calms a storm in your life, and that be it. But I think I would be doing a disservice to you and to God's word if I did such. The further we get into this gospel, the greater Christ's authority becomes clear to disciples and to us. Earlier in Mark's gospel, we can see Jesus' authority over de uh, demons and disease, yes. Now we see here, Jesus has complete authority over creation. He has so much authority that he controls inanimate elements of creation with just the sound of his voice. Who man, or what man is this? Who is this man? The realization that Jesus is in charge of every created thing is spelled out crystal clear, with crystal clear clarity. Here in Mark's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, in Luke's gospel, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, in Revelation. So pretty much the whole Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. This is Jesus. Paul tells us Jesus created all things in the visible world and all the angelic beings in the invisible world. He didn't just create all things, but all things are for him. He is literally the glue that holds everything in the universe together. Hebrews tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds everything by the word of his power. So we learn Jesus doesn't just have authority over demons and disease. He has authority over everything in the universe he controls everything. He is the glue that holds everything together. He sustains it with perfection. No blemish. Jesus is much greater than the disciples have imagined. And maybe you just realize it, realizing that this morning too. Jesus is both fully God and fully man in one person. God incarnate. Jesus the Messiah. Last, we see a great fear. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled, filled with great fear and said to one another, 
Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this? That's a question that each of us need to ask and must ask at some point in our life or another. Who then is this man? Who is Jesus to you? Is he in your boat? Is he Lord? Not just Savior, but is he Lord over your life? Who then is this man? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In other words, why were you scared in the midst of this storm? Did you think things were so out of control that I didn't have control of anything? Do you not know who I am still? Here previously, right before this passage, they were learning about the faith of a mustard seed and the kingdom of God. Yet they still didn't understand. Do you think I didn't know what was happening here? Jesus telling or probably thinking to the disciples. Did you think I didn't know what was happening because I was asleep? When the storm hit, the problem was not that they turned to Jesus for help. That's not the problem. They should. Go to Jesus. Absolutely. The problem was that they thought Jesus forgot and didn't care in the midst of the storm because he was asleep. And we can hear it in the tone, in the question they ask. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Jesus knew exactly what was going on, and he was in, in complete control. And he was in, in complete will of God the Father. And with tongue in cheek, it pains me to see so much of myself in this story. And maybe for you as well. In the storms of life, I often act just like them too. <clears throat> when, the storm is, uh, when the world is falling apart around me, what do I say to God? Jesus, where are you? I ask. And oftentimes I don't ask it, but I yell it in an accusatory tone, like the disciples probably. Don't you care about me? In my situation, Jesus, if you love me, you wouldn't let this happen to me. I've often said that. I've often said that. Even before I became a Christian, I said that to Jesus and to God. Many of those things. Again, it pains me to see so much of myself in this story. Have you no faith? I've preached only a handful of times here, and many of you probably have heard various storms I've talked about in my life. As a young child, mother falling prey to a drug addiction, dad not being around emotionally absent, not there. Then myself later on as a teenager, following in the same footsteps with drugs and alcohol from the age of 13 until I was 18, 19 years old, it gets confusing. Then my nine-year pornography addiction struggle, storm, right? Many storms I've been through, and I could keep going and on, but one I don't talk about as often because it's hard. It's a hard storm. Um, it happened in 2018, actually. Uh, I was here. Well, I wasn't here at this church yet. Um, but I was at SWU, uh, right, down the way, uh, right down the road, if you know where it's at. 
And we were just moving in back into our sophomore year for college. Me, my wife and I, we weren't married at the time. We were engaged. But we were just moving back in, getting ready for the school year, sophomore year. <clears throat> and we had a big storm hit. One like this. 70 mile power winds, just tragic, out of nowhere. We get a call as we're moving in one day. Um, that m- My wife's brother um, took his own life. Out of nowhere. A big storm. Suicide. The things we don't like to talk about from the pulpit often. And as much as it was a storm for me, I didn't realize how big of a storm that it would be for my wife. Because at the time, I was having a mountaintop experience. I had just given my life to Christ around that time, and I see the, how the Lord worked in that, because I, she needed me. And I was a young Christian, and just young and ignorant of many things. And the grieving process has been long and hard over the past couple of years. And the hardest thing has been not being able to help, not being able to take away the pain, the hole there in her heart seeing her nights, weeks, months, just cry until she could not have any tears left to cry and getting mad. And not even that mad at God sometimes. You probably would think I'm disgusting, but mad at her because it's six months, it's eight months, it's two years, and I think you should be over this by now. Yeah. But really, I was just frustrated because I couldn't help. All I could do was just pray. And I was like, oh, what's again, I was ignorant. I was a young Christian, still am. And I thought I needed to do more. Men, most of us were fixers. Like, you know, we wanted to get things fixed and move on. Yet, and part of us are still in that storm today. It's, it's always with us. It's always on our backs. It has gotten easier. The Lord has been gracious to us. Man, he's been gracious. Actually, I made this book for her uh, one Christmas. I forget when it was. Um, maybe you can see it. I don't know if you guys can see it. And on the front, it says, your story isn't over yet. And it has a, a semicolon there, and that's kind of the symbol for, for uh, suicide. And it's just a, a book I made for her of pictures of him, old Facebook posts, old uh, text message threads. She said, I've been depressed lately, and I'm away from home, work tonight. I started crying. And homeless, this is a, a nightly thing where I'm driving home because my car is a safe spot for me. She said, most of you know, six months ago, my brother took his own life on August 18th, 2018. Tonight I was crying because I remembered that I was the one who had to call my family and tell them. She said, I was thinking about the day before, August 17th. The day before. Blake, her brother, kissed me on the cheek, hugged me and said, I love you. 
for the last time. On his back, I have his obituary comments and everything. You see, Blake, he, um, he struggled with mental illnesses. He did. And then you couple that with abuse of drugs and alcohol. Doesn't mix very well. And he struggled. And we tried to help him. Actually, that summer prior, before our sophomore year, going back to school, we spent a whole summer, all three and a half months or so, tending just to him. Taylor didn't even work that summer because every day she would get a call of him threatening to take his own life. And I know that sounds selfish on his part. I, I get it. I won't get into all that. That was her brother, and she would do anything for him. And to be honest, I wasn't the best person to go through that with her at the time. I was selfish. I was non-compassionate. Numb at times. And at times, I feel like I didn't care. Storms, we all go through them in some shape, way, or form or another. They're inevitable. You say, when the storm hit, the problem was not that they turned to Jesus. Again, I was just received Christ at this time that Blake took his life. And I believe that was to help my wife, to help point her to the one who could help her. Because I couldn't. The problem was that they didn't think, they didn't care, that Jesus didn't care about them. Jesus did, and Jesus does, and he cares about you and your storm whatever that may be for you. We all have different storms and don't compare and contrast because you think, oh, well, this person's storm is greater than my storm. Don't do that. Jesus does care about you and Jesus Jesus knew everything that was going on in this storm here with the disciples and he knows everything that we are facing today. Nothing Nothing is out of his control. And we read that it says they were filled with great fear. The word for fear could mean Frightened fear, but I think it doesn't necessarily mean that, like they were scared of Jesus. But no, it's the fear of the Lord that we read in Scripture about so often. The Greek word translated as fear could mean an astonished, blown away type of fear, like a a sense of reverence here for the Lord Jesus. A sense of reverence that many of us today have lost, and much of the church today has lost. A sense of the fear of the Lord, reverence and all of who he is. And I think they were right to be of great fear. They were completely blown away by the power and authority that he had. First, first they were blown away because Jesus silenced the wind and the waves instantly with his word. Second, they were blown away that Jesus was fully aware of their plight, even while he was sleeping. This man's exhausted, just dead asleep, and he's still aware. 
And this is the truth that I believe that you need to hear this morning. Maybe it's not for you currently right now in this season, but hold on to it. Hold on to it. Jesus, as Jesus told his disciples, or just as Jesus told his disciples, they had nothing to fear in the storm because he was watching over them and caring for them. Jesus is watching over for us, caring for us. He is the good shepherd, and he is the great I am. He promises to care for us in all of our storms for life, uh, in life. <coughs> and often, when life falls, falls apart, it feels like Jesus is silent. I know. I feel like Jesus was silent throughout these past four years. I've seen my wife cry herself to sleep at night, wondering where Jesus is. But yet, the scripture I've come back to time and time again and it's given me the truth that Jesus is not asleep. He is fully aware. So three applications for you as we close out this morning here. Uh, they're right there on the screen. Some of it's cut off. It's okay. The first is Jesus has authority over creation. We know that. He is a God-man, both fully and divine. Oh, fully divine. Both fully and divine. Both fully human and fully divine. The second is this. The apostles were just as safe during the storm when Jesus was asleep as they were in the calm when Jesus was awake. Did you get that? They were just as safe in the midst of the storm, waves crashing in when he was asleep, just as much as they were when he was awake. And so are we. So are we. Lastly, God uses storms and puts us in storms and sails us in the storms to mature us, to increase our faith, our love, our trust, and our reverence for him, for him. He's closed with these two verses here. Romans chapter five. We rejoice in our sufferings. This is Paul, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has given us. Lastly, in James chapter 1, count it all joy. Not a little bit, not part. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not saying might. It says when. Which means it's going to happen. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. Again, I don't know if you're in a storm, coming out of one, going into one. But he who began a good work in you will carry it on into completion. I believe that the greatest confidence that my faith can muster Will you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for this time together. Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning that has been preserved for us throughout the years and centuries, Lord. But we thank you for having it relevant to us in our own English language. What a privilege, privilege that is to us. But Lord, we thank you most importantly for the truth of your word for us today. And it may not be for us right now, currently in this season, but Lord, help us to hold on and hide your word in our heart as your scripture says. To hide it in our hearts 
because we will need it when that day, when, when that storm comes. And yes, we will probably forget it. And the enemy will tell us lies that you are not here, that you're absent, that you are dead, that you are asleep. But man, how much of a lie that is. The same God in the Old Testament creating the world, the heavens, the sea, the sky, the land, the birds of the air, the beast, Adam and Eve, the same God we see here. Same God we see here. We thank you for that. That you're not just transcendent, some faraway God, but you are imminent. You're close with us. You're with us. When we're crying ourselves to sleep, you're with us. You're with us. So we pray that you continue to be with us. Lord, you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, thank you this morning for being with us. If you're a guest and I just did poorly, don't rate your Google rating on me. Wait till the uh, senior pastor comes back, okay? Hey, it is a joy to have you uh, and it is a joy and an honor to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Go in his grace and peace. Hey, we have VBS tonight, by the way. Uh, I'm running games, and so uh, if you want to see uh, a big kid, a big little kid, because I'm only five foot four, playing with little, little kids, then bring your kid to VBS tonight all throughout this week, uh, starting tonight at 6 p.m. to 8.30, going to Thursday night. It's going to be super fun. Again, thank you for being with us. Go in peace.